0: our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 11 through 15, and chapter 2, verse 7 through 10. You'll find this also, if you don't have your own Bible, in the Blue Bible in the pew on page 200. you turn there now, please. Judges chapter 1. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. In chapter 2, verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. Died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Ares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the word of our God.
1: I'm going to add to our reading, if you'll stay there in Judges, uh, this was my fault, apparently I left off this section, which we're going to deal with, but these these both were background sections for uh, what we're going to read this morning as well on Othniel. So, uh, from the first chapter, 11 through 15, is background in terms of Othniel and how he won a city and one Caleb's daughter. And then the other background is just after Joshua's death, the background that the another generation turned away from the Lord. And so now in chapter 3, verse 7, we have really what goes back to that point, okay? It goes back to that point of seeing the unfaithfulness of Israel. And let's read beginning with verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And you'll find if you compare this, we won't go through in detail, but this repeats everything said in chapter 2 when he was giving the outline of what was going to happen with the judges. This is the most complete of all the judges saying, all right, we told you what was going to happen here it is in a nutshell here's the whole so they forgot the lord their god they served the baals and the Ashtaroth. therefore the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and he sold them into the hand of cushan-rishataim excuse me king of mesopotamia and the people of israel served cushan rishataim 8 years but when the people of israel cried out to the lord the lord raised up a deliverer for the people of israel who saved them othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, of whom we read in chapter 1. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishataim. So the land laid, had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. All right, let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to enter into your word, to be built up and encouraged in this word, as we see, Lord, how you delivered Israel by raising up a Savior, a deliverer, who was empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we, in turn, will look to you. You've given us the Savior, the Lord Jesus, empowered him by the Spirit. And then in turn, he pours out the Spirit upon his people so that we might live out new lives in the Spirit. Bless us, Lord, to understand the glory of what you've done for your people. What you've done for your people throughout the ages, what you did for Israel then, what you do for new Israel even now. We look to you, Lord, in your grace and mercy. Amen. Years ago, we were out in Roaring Springs either in or near Roaring Springs, since I was small at the time and I'm not sure, but I knew we were in West Texas. That's where my mother was raised, near Lubbock, in a place called Roaring Springs. The Roaring Springs are so icy cold that in the middle of the summer, you think you're going to die when you jump into the pool. Then, if you're really brave, you jump into the spring itself. And then you will die. You will not come out alive uh, if you jump into that spring. But that's Roaring Springs, and uh, apparently was a place where uh, Native Americans uh, camped a lot and all that kind of thing. So a neat little place, only about two three hundred in the town. Well, on one of our visits out there, uh, instead of catching horn toads, which I usually did, we found ourselves in a flash flood. And all I remember about the flash flood is we were in this one spot. Isolated because of this roaring water, and we had to get to the car. And I remember my dad taking me and my brother, my little brother, and the, and the water was, you know, here to us at the time. And he took us through this flood from this place of danger to us to the place of safety to get in the car and, and to leave. But the thing I remember about it is... How many times I lost my footing in the flood. I mean, he's just dragging these two little guys that are, you know, if he just let go, I'm gone. Because I ain't got nothing to hold on to except daddy's hand. My feet are off the ground. And so, and then sometimes I catch my feet, sometimes I wouldn't. But just that sense of being utterly held by the power of my dad. I mean, he was like a superhero, you know. (laughs) He was able to walk through this water, and and I could feel the weight and the power of it, that it would just sweep me. I I knew I was that close to death, at least it felt like it, but preserved by this mighty strength that uh, I felt my dad had. And this is a great model for what God does for his people, Uh, a great model for what he did for Israel here when they were helplessly under the thumb of uh, Kushan Reshata'in. What a great name, huh? Uh, we'll talk about that name in a minute. Um, but uh, uh, utterly under his thumb, uh, he, he was from the area from which Assyria and Babylon uh, are, which were the two double evils that were going to come down and sweep through uh, and, and cause Israel to go into exile. So a a distance away, a mighty conqueror who came down and brought them under his thumb. And we have this very brief uh, statement. This is the briefest of all except for the minor judges. But of the ones who are described, this is a bare bones account uh, of Othniel delivering uh, God's people. So first we're going to look at the situation and then we'll look at the Savior who is called uh, Othniel here. But first, the the situation. Um, This is part because it's... Othniel is of Judah, we've learned earlier in chapter 1. And we learn in chapter 1 that this this, uh, description in chapter 1 is lifted right out of Joshua word for word. It's a repeat of this uh, event of his winning Caleb's daughter. And the point seems to be then for the writer to underscore doubly that it's Judah that will deliver the people of God. It is Judah that goes first. In Earlier in chapter 1, it says, who's going to go up for us first? It's Judah that goes up first. And this is underscored in this one who belongs to Judah, uh, Othney, although he's a Kenizzite and and a a Gentile, uh, he's brought under the umbrella of Judah, and and he acts in this great way that's described in some detail. And that's the background then for Othniel to be the first judge. Uh, He's got this lineage. He's married to Caleb's daughter. Uh, She seems to be a wise and rather crafty woman, uh, bringing blessing to him, unlike what happens later in uh, Judges when uh, people like Samson consort with prostitutes. He is the antith- antithesis to this. He is married to this wonderful woman, daughter of Caleb. Uh, he is established in the land. He is living out the new life of God in the land, and he's called to be the first judge. Now, many commentators talk about how Othniel, because this is basically, it's the structure of chapter 2 and just filling in names. Okay? The structure of chapter 2, how uh, they turned away from idols uh, they cried out to God. God delivered him in his compassion, gave them a judge, and brought rest. And that's about all you have here. There's no description of any detail. You don't hear about the battle. You don't hear about Othiel's struggle or his thoughts or his fears or his compromises. You don't hear about anything. It's just almost a filling in of the names. And the point is, they think, because of the way it's structured is that this then becomes the paradigm for all other judges. It's, it's the model, it's the blueprint for what should be done by a judge, but what afterwards is hardly ever done by a judge. Nobody really rises to the level of Othniel after this. So it's part of it is to give you that capsule of exactly what should be done. In fact, There's no reference to anything about Othniel. There's just the point, he listens to God and goes out and does it. And all the attention in this passage is upon God and his work and his majesty and his power, his spirit that delivers. And so uh, the the largest concentration of that formula in chapter 2 is found right here as this wonderful model and yet sadly... Everything begins to unravel after Othniel. Uh, This is the high point uh, in Judges. So from one standpoint, you might say this is the most boring section of all. Way more interesting to hear about the spicy stuff that comes later in Judges and, but yet we need to see this is one of the most glorious sections, the most glorious section of Judges because it just shows a man uh, being taken up by God and being used by God to deliver uh, his people. Now it says here that, this, and this is the situation, that they did what was evil in the sight of God. They forgot the Lord their God. And as we talked about it, this doesn't mean just a mental lapse. Oh, oh yeah, forgot where my keys were. Oh yeah, I left them on the cabinet, you know. Not that kind of thing. But it means they refused God. They turned away from God. They neglected him. They discarded God. They had no affection and love for God. And naturally when the, as we've talked about this already, when this happens and God begins to fade from view, for believers. When we begin to turn away from God and, and we don't have the affection, the love, the passion for Him, then it's like coming out of the fog bank, idols will take the place. They're just ready to move in, right? Once they, so to speak, once sin, so to speak, sees that our hearts are turning away from our passion for God, they readily come in to take the place. So naturally, they forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Asheroth. Um, this female deity, uh, was. War- they, uh, God warned them against this in Deuteronomy, saying, you shall not set up an, uh, a pole to this female goddess. This pole stood for the tree, which also stood for her futility, fertility. Don't set this up by an altar of the Lord. And you think, really? Would they do that? In fact, in Kings, Josiah, it says, when he, as even a child, brings reform to Israel, one of the things he does is goes in, he goes into the temple to bring out the Asherah, okay, where they were in the temple, these female deity uh, idols. And apparently what happened was, uh, even as they would hold on to Yahweh in some way, because Baal and Ashtra were male and female, they kind of thought Yahweh needed a female companion, needed that fertility. And so uh, the, the, the canonization of Israel happens so quickly as they begin to serve the Baals and the Asherah. And we see here the warning in Deuteronomy, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt in Deuteronomy 6. This is right after he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Remember his word. Write it on the doorpost. Put it as a sign on your forehead. Don't forget him. Don't don't let him fade. And later in Deuteronomy 8, after saying that I, I left you in the wilderness so that you would understand you depend absolutely on my care day by day. You, you wake up in the morning, there's no food, he's got to bring it, manna from heaven. Wake up the next day, you got no food, he's got to bring it. You're, you're clearly dependent upon him. But he says, when you get in the land and you begin to plant your fields and reap your harvests, be careful... That your heart be lifted up, he says. You become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You forget the Lord your God and you go after other gods and serve them and worship them. And that's our tendency, you know. You get bank accounts okay. You got a home is fine. You've got no pressure financially perhaps and things are looking pretty good. And you, you tend not to pray with sincerity. Oh Lord, give us this day our daily bread. It's like, by the way, I got that covered. You know, I know where my bread's coming. got money in the bank. Uh, I've got some savings. Uh, my, my paycheck's regular. I, I don't really need to pray that anymore. And in so much as we start thinking that way, we're forgetting about God. Totally forgetting about the fact that we are utterly, absolutely dependent upon him. Physically and economically, and especially spiritually. Like he says here, don't forget that you were slaves in Egypt. That's who you were, and I delivered you. And and you and I should always be connecting the dots to say, I was absolutely lost and helpless and headed for absolute judgment. And you have mercy on me. That's how dependent I am upon you. Relate your spiritual helplessness to helplessness in general. You're absolutely dependent upon God for all things. It is so, uh, and we've said it before, but it is so easy not to have a passionate desire and dependence for God. Passionate desire for him and a, and a real sense of your dependence Upon him So interesting that this whole section of the judges begins with "They forgot about God, and when it ends, Samuel's the last judge, so it's into Samuel chapter 12, and he's reviewing what happened during that period. He says, "And they forgot God. So it's really kind of a statement of this whole period. They just kept forgetting God, forgetting God, forgetting God, and by God's grace. That will not happen for us by his grace. Because when we forget God, we begin to remember other gods. We remember those gods we used to serve or the gods around us. And they become more important to us. They become our true affection. When he decreases, they increase. When he fades from view, they come front and center to catch your attention. And so the warning here, the situation of forgetting God. And yet what happens here is when they give themselves to other gods, God gives them over to Kushan Rishtaim. right? the, The giving up of yourself to another god will have terrible consequences for us. You know, Paul says in Romans 6... No longer present yourselves as instruments to unrighteousness, but to present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. It's this presenting of your whole life, your whole self, uh, either to the enemy, Satan, to sin, or you present yourself as a basic way of life. I'm putting my whole self in the, in the hands of God. I, I trust in His goodness because I've seen His goodness in Jesus Christ and, and He's won me to Himself and I continue to feed and nourish myself upon Jesus and, and my growing love means a growing putting, uh, to, to put myself in His hands. And I want to urge us all, I urge this to myself. Don't present yourself to sin. I was reading a brief account of, again, what happened in World War II when they were in the trenches, and some of these officers from Britain and would, who really disconnected from the reality of the situation and full of their own pomp and their own ideas, would send men over the top. They just, at certain capricious times, send men over the top, and they were just absolutely mowed down by machine gun fire. It's a wonder. It's it's wonderful. It's it's great that it didn't happen as much as it did, but it happened to the a terrible toll on both sides. And and I want to say to you, to present yourself to sin is that kind of thing. Here, here, sin. Here, Satan, have at it. You have my life. Do do with it whatever you want. We don't think of it that way, but that, that's the reality when we begin to entertain. Bitterness or anger or lust or uh, we begin to entertain other things taking the place of God's Word and prayer. You see, we're, we're, we're inviting sin to come in and take over my life. You know, it's like a child presenting himself or herself to a person, an older person that's going to harm you. You know, don't, don't give yourself to sin. Don't give yourself to sin. It means you know good at all. It, it, every sin, if it can have its absolute way, it would bring you to complete ruin. That's the point of it. That's the point of the enemy. Thanks be to God; He will not allow His people to give themselves over to sin absolutely and, and fully. Uh, though we fail in many ways, uh, the basic, the basic context for our life and the basic direction of our life is continuing to give ourselves up to Jesus Christ though we won't do it perfectly. But just to urge you, we we it's so easy for us to think about grace in such a way that doesn't really matter, you know. God's going to take care of me and it's okay whatever I do. But we need to keep in our minds the the danger of sin. John Owen talks a lot about this in in his treatment of Sin and putting sin to death in your life. And he says, always keep a strong sense of the guilt and the danger of sin. Strong sense of the guilt and danger of sin. And in this case, though, as they forget their God and serve Baals, and anger is kindled against Israel, remember we talked about how this is the passion of God for their well-being. God is passionate, jealous in the good sense that he really does care about them. He really does want a relationship. He really does want their good. And so you might say physically here, he is merciful. Though spiritually we can be hurt and harmed by sin, and I mean this in a spiritual way, sometimes God brings physical things into our life. Now, there's not a one-to-one connection whatsoever. No way. Or or he brings different ways to bring us uh, to give ourselves up to him. But I want to say this. If things go well for you your whole life, you never have any reason to doubt your own sufficiency. And God allows you to reject him and not think about him and just to go comfortably on your own way then you can be assured up to that point that you're being herded by the enemy of your soul, that you're in that flock that's headed for destruction. It is not a sign of God's mercy that he allows people comfortably to go to their death apart from God. And so I'm saying this. So many times we tend to interpret bad things as, oh, God has punished me, oh, God is against me, I would say never is that categorically true, ever, that everything, any difficulty that's ever brought to us, if you want to know what God's intention, because he says, I do not, uh, he just says, I do not desire the death of the wicked, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, God always has this kind desire. Though we may reject His work, we may not recognize His work. We may look to Him and say, oh, you're doing this because you're against me. In that sense, God's never really against you. He's always seeking to send forth the gospel and the good news to say, come to me and receive the grace and favor of Jesus. And So, to look on difficulty or hardship as a sign of God rejecting you more almost without fail. In this life, it's it's to be used in your life to draw you to depend upon Him. This this world, in all of its difficulties, these are all warnings to us. They're huge red lights to say, all is not well. You need a deliverer, you need rescue, you need restoration to God. You need the ultimate blessing that God's going to bring when he renews the whole of the earth. And there is no more curse anymore. There is no darkness and, and aloneness and, and murder and strife and ra- all of these things. We all need to be delivered from this. And God has given his son to deliver us from all evil eventually. And so, when you face difficulty, assume, assume God means well for you. He means good for you either in the sense of he means for you to go through this difficulty and draw upon him and trust in him all the more as you have been trusting him and dig deeper into his goodness and his resources and be drawn all the more closely to him, even as you were being drawn to him. Or in some cases, for some of you who yet have never given yourself to Christ, it would be God's undermining your comfort, undermining your well-being, that you might turn your head back to him. I'm always touched by that scene in Hosea where he says, I will put a hedge of thorns so that she cannot run away from me, so that Israel cannot run away from me. And it just touches me because he's saying, I'm going to make it so hard for her that she'll come back to me because she'll have nowhere else to go. And you think... That's such a humble thing for God to do. You know? Like almost as, I'll I'll take you on the rebound. I'll take you when you have nowhere else to go. I will have you. What a God. How can he have that much mercy? How can he be so gracious when he could just remove us immediately? He's a God of amazing mercy. And even in Kushan Rishta'in, uh, coming and taking him over, It's for the point of their crying out to God. And even here, the cry is probably not a repentant cry. It's just a cry of pain. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Why wouldn't that be so annoying to God? Now later, he does say, hey, why don't you, why don't you let your God save you? Let them do that. As the things begin to, you know, spin out of control. But here he comes to their rescue only because of his mercy, not because of repentant hearts. Not because internally there's something happened. It's just because of an external difficulty. And you know, you you can you can identify with this sometimes um, that God would have mercy on us in our distress. And here's another thing You, you tend to think, well, I was just crying out because I was miserable. And guess what? He'll even hear that. He even hears your distress. He's even concerned about it. How can that be? I, I heard a terrible thing recently. There was a young man in our ministry in Dallas when I was at Park Cities for a few years as the singles director. And I actually knew there were seven or 800 singles, but I actually knew this fellow and had been in his apartment. And I was concerned about him in some ways in terms of his Christian life, but he was struggling along. Well, I just recently, uh, another person involved in that ministry sent me a note that he had been involved in a real estate deal in Denver uh, in which it found out that he was embezzling millions of dollars. This came out, 20 indictments were made against him. And... He fled Denver, followed him to South Carolina. He got loose. And the next thing they hear is he's taken his own life somewhere in Florida. And my first response was not, you know, anger and, oh, he got what's coming to him. That's what happens when you do that. I doubt yours would have been either. My heart was just broken, you know, just in tears, weeping over this situation of this This man that, and I don't know where his heart is, but, and I'm a self centered sinner, you know? And yet I've got this flooding compassion and concern for this this man. What do you think God is like? Huh? God of unlimited compassion, unlimited concern for our well being? How he's touched by mankind's distress? So, even if you cry out, and the beginning cry is not one of great repentance, but it's just a cry of pain, isn't it wonderful to hear that God even listens to that cry of distress? What a God of mercy. What a God of compassion. Now, just a word, and I'll have to touch on this next week, but... um, Othniel, this, we've talked some about the situation. Othniel, the name, by the way, uh, this, this name, Kushan Rishata'im, is probably a word that the Israelites had invented for him. It, it, it means double evil, okay? Uh, or one, one guy says that it's double dark uh, wickedness. Uh, and maybe you could put it like double trouble, right? Just so evil, and, and it brought such evil upon us. Uh, now, it's hard to see the original uh, sound of it, because it says, as your text says there in verse 8, Kushan Rishita, in king of Mesopotamia. Notice it mentions his name twice, and then it mentions it twice later. And this is like a framework, okay? And all the action takes place between these two names to show you how important his name is. But in the original, instead of Mesopotamia, it reads like this. And this is probably how the Israelites thought about it. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit included this. Kushan Rishata'im of Aram Nahara'im. Right? Maybe there was even a little poem with it, you know. Kushan Rishata'im of Aram Nahara'im. Nahara'im, Mesopotamia, means double river. So, double, treble. From double river, double evil. All the more Othniel means the time of God, the time of God to come forth and to deliver from double evil, from double trouble, from double river, uh, this foreign power uh, that brings such terrible things into uh, the nation. And he does so by the Spirit of the Lord, verse 10. Now, this is important for us because the Spirit of the Lord, and used in connection with a military leader in war, is used five times in Judges and then only two more times with Saul and David. So, really, in a way like nowhere else in Scripture, there's this emphasis on a leader, a kingly leader, empowered by the Holy Spirit, To defeat the enemies of God. Of course, you see the overtures of, or overtones of Jesus Christ, the one supremely given the Spirit who has come. And I want to explore that a little bit more next week. But I want to read to you a little portion from uh, George Schwab, who is a lecturer in Old Testament. And uh, he says, When I lecture on Othniel, okay. When he lectures on Othniel. And by the way, uh, Ralph Davis, who wrote the commentary that we have uh, on the book table on judges, and I highly, highly recommend it. He's way more interesting than I will ever be uh, (laughs) preaching. He writes in such a wonderful way. But uh, I was looking at Ralph's uh, email address because I want to send him a note to maybe have him speak for our men uh, if we have a retreat next year. And his, uh, the next story is about Ehud, right? The left-handed guy. His email is leftyahud at gmail.com. <laughs> I just love that. And I wish I'd thought of it for sure, you know, but leftyahud at gmail.com. <laughs> um, but here, a, a different Old Testament lecturer says, when I lecture on Othniel, I show my students a short clip from the nineteen ninety-five movie Judge Dredd starring Sylvester Stallone. Won a ton of academies that year. Um, <laughs> I think he got best actor. He was just amazing, of course, in it. But <clears throat> so here's Judge Dredd. I know you're like, okay, I gotta hear this. How is this a <clears throat> Well, it, it gives you a good idea of the kind of judge that Othniel is, because it says he judged Israel, but it doesn't say that he, you know, decided court, court cases uh, or that he brought righteousness in there. He judged Israel and he wiped out Cushan-Rashatayim. Rash, okay, that's how he judged Israel. So it, it indicates that the judge really was a warrior, right? The judge is a warrior and a king. That's what he was. And he brought judgment for Israel against their enemies. And so he says this. He plays the street judge. If you haven't seen it, I know you'll rush out and get this movie, Judge Dredd. He plays a street judge in a futuristic setting. I've seen maybe five or ten minutes of this before and wisely turned it off. Uh, He plays a street judge in a futuristic setting where Judge Judges police cities, okay? So you've got a judge who's policing the city. This is pretty close to what Othniel did, okay? he's a judge who's policing the land, all right? So the movie begins with a scene of Stallone's character, Judge Dredd, shouting to some villains. (laughs) I won't try to do Stallone, but you're tempted to. Throw down your weapons and prepare to be judged, Okay? That's kind of like Othniel coming to King Double Evil and saying, throw down your weapons and prepare to be judged. So after a shootout, leaving them them dead at his feet, he says with finality, courts adjourned. (laughs) So he invites us then, he says he invites his students to say with Othniel after Kushan Rishta'im is dead at his feet. Courts adjourned. The judge has brought judgment by the power and spirit of God. And the wonderful good thing, which I'll just give in a nutshell, is that our Lord Jesus Christ has come to judge our enemy's sin, to judge Satan. It says that he came, 1 John, to destroy the work of the devil. And the devil lies at his feet. And the Lord Jesus says, court adjourned. My people are delivered from the stranglehold of sin. They were on the treadmill of sin, but now the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set them free so that they walk new lives in a new world with new powers and new relationships to God and to one another. That is who you are. You also are filled with that same spirit that you might, in the words of Paul, he says this, that Satan soon will be trampled under your feet. Then doesn't say Jesus' feet. He says your feet. By the power of the Spirit, you and I can walk in ever new lives of holiness and commitment to Jesus Christ because Jesus has come. And of Satan, he says, court adjourned. The king reigns in heaven and earth, and he brings his people into that reign. We'll explore that more next week. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you that though the evil that we face, as Paul says, we're not faced with flesh and blood. And for whatever he was, Kushan Rishatayim was flesh and blood. We stand against a far more horrible and terrible foe. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, that we stand against spiritual forces in evil places. He gives the picture of ranks upon ranks of marshaled beings in dignity and power that we face as spiritual enemies. And even then, he says, stand strong in the Lord. By your grace, Lord, we have been raised from the dead. By your grace, we've been seated with you in the heavenlies. By your grace, we participate through your spirit in walking new lives, not given over to our former master, but we've been delivered from darkness and been brought under the care and the power and the comfort and the security of our precious Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself to die for us. O Lord, what a transfer from the murderer and liar to the true one who gave himself for us. O Lord, may we ever walk in growing freedom through our precious Savior, our great Othniel. The time of God has come and the one who is called God himself, God with us has come, and he delivers his people. And we, even like the land did then, we have rest for our souls. We can know the peace that passes all comprehension. We can be upheld by a great hope and a great joy in him. And ever increasingly, our lives can be conformed to the very love of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Great deliverer that you have come to rescue your people. Pray this for your glory and honor. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe. This podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.